Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of The Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. All right, everybody, hold on to your seats because hot on the heels of a series of amazing conversations that I've had over the past couple of months. This one, amazing. I had a conversation with the one, the only Virgie Tovar. And here we start off talking about what fat phobia and diet culture is and how they're linked. We also talk about the many ways healthcare professionals can bring themselves and others closer to body justice We really dig into how people lose belonging of their bodies and importantly, ways back. We discuss the first things we need to do in the unraveling of fat phobia and diet culture. And then Virgie also very, very generously shares meaningful lessons from her own journey back to her body. So you may know Virgie most well from being the author of You Have the Right to Remain Fat, and this is an incredible book which I highly, highly recommend. But you may not know that she's also the author of The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Colour, which was only published in 2020. She's also the host of the amazing podcast, Rebel Eaters Club, which I highly recommend. And speaking of podcasts, the impetus for me actually reaching out to Virgie is I heard her as a guest on the Laverne Cox Show podcast. And this this was an absolute cracker. I reached out to Virgie within five seconds of finishing listening to this podcast episode after years loosely being in touch with Virgie and, um, and basically said to her, will you please, please come on my podcast because my ad, my admiration for you and your work and your messaging, it's just, I mean, it's sky high already, but oof, this was one out of the box, which I really, really encourage you to go back and listen to. So luckily for me and for us, Virgie said a big enthusiastic yes. And so here is our conversation. A little bit more about Virgie before we get into our chat. So Virgie holds a master's degree in sexuality studies with a focus on the intersections of body size, race and gender. She's a contributor to Forbes, where she covers the plus size market and how to end weight discrimination at work. She started the hashtag campaign Lose Hate Not Weight and in 2018 gave a TEDx talk on the origins of the campaign. I think you'll probably need to take a breath before listening to this conversation. We kind of take a pretty quick entry right into the uh, meat and veg of the the content of of Virgie's amazing book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. So you might want to grab a a beverage of some description, whatever feels okay to you. And I really, really hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had with Virgie Tovar. So thanks for being here. If you'd like any other information about what we offer, 
by we, I mean I, at The Mindful Dietitian, then please check out um, training courses, um, other opportunities and other podcast episodes at The Mindful Dietitian, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. Thank you so much for being here and I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It is my enormous pleasure today to be speaking with somebody who I've been wanting to speak to for a while. She is wise. She is magnificent. And I am talking today to Virgie Tovar. Hey, Virgie, lovely to be speaking with you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, this is, uh, this is, um, you know, you have been really instrumental in so many people's learning about anti-fat attitudes, about diet culture, about all of the sneaky shape-shifting ways that, um, you know, mm-hmm. diet culture and racism and fat phobia all intersect in, into our experiences. So first of all, I just wanted to start off by saying a huge thank you for, for being in this space and for being such an important voice. Mm, thank you for saying that. <laughs> Yeah, you've been at this for, you know, uh, from lived experience since you were very young and then been authoring and speaking and being involved in various different communities for quite a number of years. And before we start this conversation, the one thing I wanted to invite is that if I say a word or a phrase that you don't understand, as in it's an Australianism type of thing, you... you, (laughs) You are more than welcome to just say pause, pause, pause. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) And then I will explain what I have just said. Now, the reason why I'm inviting this is it has recently come to my attention that I do this quite a bit. And so instead of, uh, you know, like confused face emoji, (laughs) we can just like stop there and then um, I can give you a whistle stop tour through the ridiculous Australian saying so there you go I just wanted to say that right up front (laughs) okay great I I hope that one comes up so that you can take me on this journey because I'm ready (laughs) (laughs) okay strap yourself in Virgie we're on for a wild ride here (laughs) no awesome okay I just wanted to say that in case you're like what was that word I don't understand that Perfect. Okay. So now your book, one of your books, I should say, is you have the right to remain fat. And towards the beginning of this book, you clearly make the connection between diet culture and fat phobia. Now, many people listening might be familiar with these two words and and other people might not be super familiar with this. So I'm wondering if just to kind of lay the foundation to flick out the picnic rug, I'm wondering if it feels okay just to press pause and to make sure that the people listening have got a really clear understanding about really what we're, what we're talking about here and using these words and these phrases as a starting point. So do you mind getting us started with defining I mean not necessarily um, Merriam Webster Webster definition defining but (laughs) in in your own in your own way you know how would you best explain diet culture and fat phobia and then the linking of the two please 
Yeah, um, well, fat phobia is essentially a form of discrimination and bigotry. And I think that can be really shocking for a lot of people because there's this belief that fat phobia doesn't exist um, and that we live in a culture that is just you know, concerned about people's health. And so in, in this context, right, like um, fatness, having a bigger body is already always considered something that is deviant or is a product of illness of some kind. And, and I think when you have that framework, um, there, there are many people who have said, you know, fat phobia to me have said, fat phobia doesn't exist. It's just a matter of that fat people shouldn't exist. Mm. Fat people, sh- like, you know, fat people only exist as a result of personal or structural failure. And that itself is, 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 a, mm. is a bigoted, mm. discriminatory belief. And so I, I find it really important to tell people Yes, in fact, when we look at the criteria of what makes up discrimination or bigotry, um, the behaviors and attitudes that um, are targeted at higher weight people overlay the criteria completely. And Mm -hmm. so that's sort of what fat phobia is. Diet culture is interesting because I feel like it's a little bit harder to tack down, I guess, you know, I mean, to begin with, I'll unpack the two words sort of like the first one is the word diet, right? And so we as a, we're a culture that normalizes food restriction. Mm-hmm. We're a culture that thinks that it's completely normal to count calories and count how much you eat. And this sense that, you know, this idea that food is fuel for the machine that is our bodies and we have to control how much fuel the machine gets. And I think this, it's all very sort of, it's, it's, it, I think that it's again ensconced within this scientific conversation, the scientific language. Um, But at the end of the day, we live in a culture that essentially believes that having a a relationship to food that is largely based on control and discipline is normal. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and and that's sort of what a diet is, right? Like a diet is restricting food in order to shape or shrink your body. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I want to say just really clearly that I don't think of this as normal just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. I mean, in general, we know, for example, that diets are correlated with anxiety and depression and an increased likelihood of developing an eating disorder. Diets are not longitudinally linked, however, to weight loss. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's sort of what a diet is. The word culture to me is it's really characterized by ubiquity, the sense that you can't escape it. And so I think diet culture really is the ubiquitous belief that controlling what you eat in order to control your body um, is normal and positive. And the two of them are really connected um, because essentially dieting is overall, I think most people would agree, is a pretty unpleasant, if not exceedingly unpleasant experience. And the reason that people do it is because they see how higher weight people are treated Mm -hmm. and they don't want to be treated that way. And they'll do almost anything to try and lessen or avoid their exposure to fat phobia. So fat phobia is a required element. It's sort of the stick right to the, Mm -hmm. the stick carrot analogy. It's sort of the stick to diet culture. It's what says, you know, 
if you quote unquote, let yourself go, if you eat what you want, if you eat quote unquote, too much, then this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to become a higher weight person and people are going to treat you poorly. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what those, those things are and how they connect. Yeah. Thank you so much. That makes a, a ton of sense. I think the other thing I would ask you about is that the way d- to refer to uh, the earlier part of your response is that what I notice is that people think there's particular types of people that enact fat phobia and weight stigma and that those people are unkind they're being very intentional they don't Mm. care and that's simply not what I observe so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how our how our strong desire to be seen as quote-unquote nice people really seeks to protect us from um, from really doing the deeper work when it comes to um, comes to calling ourselves in and out, and also doing the work it brought more broadly in our healthcare culture. So, I guess in summary, what I'm saying is, how does nice get in the way of doing the right thing or doing the the, the thing that can bring us closer to body justice? Yeah, um, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, to begin with. I, I think you're right in the sense that, um, you know, fat phobia isn't just about the behaviors that are overtly aggressive um, or mean-spirited. Yeah. I've found that a lot of people who are interested and engaged in the critical conversation around fat phobia still believe that fat people are either have an eating disorder, like a binge eating disorder, um, Mm -hmm. or are otherwise ill. And I find it really fascinating that a person can have a critique of, you know, negative behaviors that are targeted at higher weight people or fat people, but themselves not, not understand that their pathologizing view of fat people is also fat phobia. Um, and and so that, that's a big one. And I, I mean, I I kind of have brushed up to be honest with you because anti fat phobia, anti diet work is so relatively new. Um, it's new to me to be, uh, sort of interacting with, um, this nuance because it is a bit of a nuanced view. I think there, there was a time where, um, you know, no one, no one knew what fat phobia was. They just thought it was completely normal that they didn't know any fat people, never dated a fat person, would never date a fat person, you know, knew nothing about what it's like to be a higher weight person. And now that's just not the case, but there's sort of this residual, um, again, pathology. And, and I, I wanted to talk about like a very specific example where a friend of mine who I like a lot and who's a really critical thinker and who's a really important influential person, um, you know, in my life. And I think in, in a lot of people's lives, we had this conversation for probably two hours about, um, about, you know, how fat phobia is harmful, how we want to end it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of that conversation, he ended up, he ended up indicating, um, I think by accident that, he believed that all higher weight people um, had were emotional eaters oh. or essentially had an uncontrolled relationship to food. 
And, and it, and I was, it was fascinating. I mean, again, like mm. after two hours of having a rollicking, amazing, very critical conversation about bigotry and discrimination and how it needed to end, he had no idea that mm. this belief was also part of fat phobia. And so I think it's important to kind of like interrogate those, um, those residual feelings that are largely based on the idea that fatness is, again, a form of deviation or uh, evidence of a system failure of some kind. I find this trap is very common in the food justice conversation. And I kind of want to, I kind of want to also say that, you know, when we're thinking about that phobia, we, we need to think of it, about it as something that isn't just out there, like outside of us and it's being experienced and other people are being targeted and that's really unfortunate and wrong or whatever. We need to actually kind of recognize that um, we all hold the trauma of fat phobia. Whether you are a fat person or not, you are absolutely being impacted by fat phobia. You are absolutely being impacted by the idea that there's certain bodies that are good and certain bodies that are bad. You're absolutely being impacted by the idea that some people are in superior and some people are superior. Um, like these things, they harm the human spirit. And I think in order for us to really change not just our minds, but our hearts and our spirits, we really have to recognize our skin in the game, which is uh, living like this, like living in a way where we see some people as good and bad or better and worse. That is that is deeply, deeply painful and harmful. And so I think locating that moment when we were little, when we were kids, and the first time someone said to you, there's something wrong with you because of your size, or the first time someone told you, there's something wrong with that person because they're quote unquote too big, like locate that moment because that moment is the genesis of the trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to say, right, like higher weight people are obviously the disproportionate recipients of that trauma and live with that trauma every day. And it's activated and actively worsened every day. But the same is true of there's no one who isn't touched by, by that experience. And I think there is this real unfortunate and awful reality of fat phobia, which is that it ostracizes fat people. It makes us want to stay inside and not leave our house and, and avoid, you know, going, going on dates and avoid those important moments, going to a wedding, going to a party. Right. And, and so I think there is this real impulse to sort of hide fat bodies away so that we never have to see the impact of fat phobia in, in real time. But the, the fact of the matter is that, that that pain is real and whether not those bodies are quote unquote hidden away or not, it's absolutely impacting us subconsciously and spiritually. Yeah, I think what you really illuminate there is the ways, uh, the various intersecting ways that folks across different body sizes are impacted by the same construct, the same kind of collection of beliefs. And like you said, when you're talking about um, culture being ubiquitous, you know, the pool we all swim in, for example, um, yeah. you know, th this is really coming back to what we're talking about here. And a lot of uh, health professionals, we are uh, trained, you know, fully in enacting um, fat phobia in lots of ways. And I think to draw back to what you just said, it's deeply, deeply painful 
to come to some kind of even the first moment of realisation of our participation in that and that that sometimes can feel in contrast with our values and ethics and how we want to show up in the world. You know, I, I don't know anybody who has pursued being a dietitian, being a social worker or a therapist, a doctor, a nurse, any, any kind of health or you know, support professional who's like, I don't give a shit about people. I want to go into these professions. I'm going to hurt people, make their lives hell. Like, <laughs> yes. this, like this is not the narrative, right? And Absolutely. What, what you speak to so beautifully there is how we define quote unquote support and help and um, even health is so deeply entwined with what we're talking about, you know, fat phobia and also the intersections of um, ableism and healthism and racism and all those things which are, they're in the pool. They're like the floaty toys in the pool of yes. diet culture. Um, yeah, so it's um, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I think that metaphor is so good. I mean, I really think of it as like the water for the fish. It's the water you know, it's the air that we breathe. And, and I think, you know, this idea that whether, again, whether you're being targeted by fat phobia or not, this idea that you can kind of abdicate the idea that you mm. can just sort of decide that you don't want to be part of it. It's literally like saying, I just don't, you know, I just don't want to breathe oxygen anymore. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it, it's just not possible. I think like, right. Like our divestment is only ever one of degrees. It's never mm. about full, fully leaving. And I think that a lot of us really dream of and desire to sort of step out of or you know remove that part of ourselves and and I think in that complexity that really is a human the fact that we can't do that is what makes us human and, and I think there's like the value in that is that um you know, is, is the, is the process, is the time, is the, is, is the complexity of like not getting caught up in shame and guilt and feeling mm. frozen in those feelings, but rather sort of having a little bit of grace and saying, of course, of course, mm. I live in a culture where this is confirmed every minute of every day. Of course, I'm going to have those thoughts. Of course, I'm going to have those impulses. Um, and my job is to sort of when I, you know, if, if we're stepping into a place of accountability and care, our job is to sort of sit with that feeling and, and have patience and, and sort of decide, right? Like, just because this is my impulse, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with that information? And I think like, what's, what's so powerful, the process element of it is that, um, is that this makes room for massive fundamental change on, mm -hmm. on like an individual scale, but also a cultural scale. Yes. That's absolutely true. And, you know, when our impulse is to turn away from our experiences, we lose that opportunity, you know, to, to, to really unearth some of those deeply held beliefs, which are, they sneak up. They're like those, they're like weeds in a grass, you know, that they find yeah, their ways, yeah. to, ways to make themselves 
come up to the surface. And for those of us as health professionals, this will show up in our work. And so yeah. the a little bit more of the um, the ongoing work is the consistent interrogation. I mean, I've been a dietitian now for over 20 years and um, I consider myself a lifelong learner and a lifelong unlearner too because it keeps showing up. It's just that I'm developing. It's it's not a finished game by any stretch, but I'm developing uh, resourcefulness or skillfulness to be able to be like, oh, I see you. I see you. And then to know what the next best step is. And usually, well, for me now, the next best step is not to like go on social media or to you know, right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. It's more to um, journal, uh, have a conversation with a colleague, my supervisor, um, or or just to sit quietly and and take my time. Um, in contrast to earlier in my career, where my impulse was to run away from the feelings that I was getting or the suspicion I was getting that maybe I wasn't a good person, you know, that maybe I yeah. didn't care as much as I thought I did. Maybe I had harmed people, which. You know, when we when we edge up against that possibility, I think we find yeah. that so scary that we tend to turn away and then avoid what's there. And what's there isn't that we're bad people. What's there is that we are good people that don't want to do harm and that our eyes are open and then we can't see it again. Yes. I mean, I love that. I mean, I think like, you know, to, to sort of echo your work is so valuable. And I mean, just even that, I mean, your work in the world is really valuable. And this internal work that you're doing is, is so, 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 so important. It's just, it's like so humanizing. I mean, I'm just, I'm immediately thinking, I remember before COVID, I was I was speaking at a conference and it was mostly women in attendance, but at the end of my talk, um, a man came up to me and he was so, I could just see in his face that he was so vulnerable. And he said, you know, I think that, I think that I may have, he, he said this, like, I think I may have given my wife an eating disorder and, um, and you know, it was like, there was, I just, I mean, there was something in his face where he just, he, you could, and he said, you know, I just didn't know that saying the things that I said would impact her. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like this moment where he was reckoning with his own power, with his own socialization, you know, and, and I, I mean, clearly, right, like as someone who's a feminist and someone who cares deeply about women um, and cares deeply about, you know, all of the, like, you know, disordered eating and body image. I mean, clearly I care all about that. And so my, my, um, you know, there's a part of me that sort of feels obviously defensive of and protective of his wife and worried about her. And, and then I think also in that moment, because I was face to face with him in the flesh and I could just see that he was having a reckoning mm -hmm. in real time, um, I also was deeply aware of like, oh my God, he's feeling the impact that he's hurt probably the person he loves the most in the world and that he didn't have the tools to even mm. recognize that it was happening when it was happening. And now he's living with the fallout. He's living in a home where he is actively watching, you know, his wife, like 
probably like, harm herself and, and 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 there and there just doesn't seem any clear path out of it you know um and so I just kind of, I just, you know, I just sort of felt really compelled to share mm-hmm. that moment because I think that, you know, you like, like he could get lost in that moment. He mm-hmm. could just spiral and just believe himself to be irredeemable, but that's not what the situation needs. Mm-hmm. You know, the situation needs him to reckon with the fact that he did harm and to repair mm-hmm. and again like i think that's the, that's the cycle right the cycle of living is harm and repair harm and repair that you know the environment harms and we repair a person harms and we repair and i i do think that even i mean and i've grappled with this you know a lot during covid where it's like i don't know that I mean, obviously we need a more just and more fair and more accountable and accessible society, but like there's another part of human life that even in the fairest, most just world, this idea that we could escape this cycle, it just, I don't know that it's possible. And so I think like, you know, absolutely we need to keep striving for change, but we need to understand that there's a fundamental way that human humans create possibilities through uh, for growth mm-hmm. through this process of being hurting, you know, healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so like, I mean, I know that was kind of a little bit of a tangent, but I just really wanted to share that there, I don't think of this man as irredeemable. I don't think mm-hmm. of his marriage as irredeemable. I don't think this woman, like his wife is beyond healing. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I just have faith in all of it. No, I, I love how you stepped through that and how you drew that parallel between, um, uh, you know, uh, rem- you'll have to remind me of the words, you know, that the harm and the repair, you know, the harm and the repair, because that really speaks to trauma recovery as well. That's the cycle yeah, that yeah. happens through trauma recovery. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that's, um, that kind of points us to why, especially in healthcare, let alone in broader culture, why trauma-informed care is so important for everybody to understand is that, in, in the pool that we're swimming in, you know, if we were to take this metaphor, and I'm just going to, by the way, just completely make this up as I'm talking, Virgie. My clients, yes. love, my clients love it when I make up stories. I can see that their eyes are just rolling in their head. <laughs> like, just, just give me some grace here. Um, so some people are in the shallow end of the pool, right? We can, you know, for those with more privilege um, and, you know, higher up on the power spectrum that, you know, we might be able to feel the bottom of the pool under our feet we might be near a ladder we might yeah. be near one of those floaty objects and then other people are in the kind of the more the middle of the pool and, and then other people are right up the deep end and way from the edge and the floaty objects are like way away and the energy that folks have to exert to yeah. just stay there you know to stay afloat if we're to kind of use this metaphor I'm loving this metaphor by the way this is a good one <laughs> yes 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 I agree um that um you know that folks up the shallow end what can we do okay so we can take some floaty objects up the other end we don't or we can get out you know I mean in this metaphor, we're not necessarily getting out of the pool, right? But we can then get ourselves to the edge. We can, you know, scoot along the edge. We can hold out our hand. We can draw people to a safer place. Um, that everybody in this pool that we're all swimming in has a place to be able to help people who are um, 
who are up the who are up the deeper end and and that are having a, a that are that are because of nothing to do with them are having to exert more energy just to stay afloat yeah i mean absolutely and i think kind of that um that visual of the of the staying afloat and just how much effort it takes like that concept i mean it just reminds me so much of um, the stress response, you yes. know, like, um, which is so connected. I mean, it's, it's essentially, um, marginalized people experience something called minority stress. Um, and, and, you know, and higher weight people are in that category. And it's, it's essentially this, this constant fight or flight, this constant sense of heightened awareness, which is called hypervigilance, um, this heightened. And, and I think, I think there's so many ripples even um, just on hypervigilance, right? Like the sense of, you know, you're constantly anticipating harm. And then in moments when, um, you know, something happens, even if it's questionable that it was potentially, you know, fat phobic, let's say, um, the, the stress response is still there. And then you feel confused. Am I, am I seeing things that aren't mm. there? And then you feel shame and then, and then you feel alienated, right? Like, can I even relate to anybody? Am I too sensitive? Quote unquote. Mm. Um, I just think that there's, I mean, and, and that has real impact on the body, like the heart and the immune system and all these systems that sort of really humans um, rely on, like humans need acceptance mm -hmm. in order to, to be healthy. And, and I really find it frustrating that um, because acceptance, quote unquote, maybe can't be quantified, maybe can't be, maybe it's a little bit too mushy, a little bit too squishy or whatever, that it's not, you know, it's not seriously considered when we're having conversations about wellness. But for me, I'm just like, you know, we absolutely, human beings absolutely need to feel accepted. They need to feel like they can get, like, you know, if they want to be in the deep side of the pool, they can, but they can come back to the, mm -hmm. to get relief, you know? And, and, and I think what oppression really does is that it, you know, to your point, and I think what's powerful about the metaphor, I think it goes back to something that I was saying, right, where it's like, the idea is the people in the shallow pool, they can't go to the deep end, the people mm -hmm. on the deep end can't go to the shallow. So I mean, even though the shallow side is obviously has a lot of advantages, you still don't get to leave that position. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that kind of that intractability is really what we're talking about here. When we're talking about oppression, it really does freeze you into into a space you know mm. yeah that's really true and that's given actually in in you saying that that's actually given me another layer to really unpack and think about so I really appreciate that thank you I, you know and that's the that's one of the things that I really appreciate about your writing your speaking you know um, hearing you on various podcasts I know I had already mentioned this to you but if anybody has not heard Virgie on the Laverne Cox show podcast um, <clears throat> highly highly recommend it will be on high repeat <laughs> as it has been on my um, on my podcast platform so yeah highly recommend you know heading over there for a two women speaking in super deep, meaningful and important ways. So anyway, just wanted to bookmark that for a moment. Um, 
Veggie, I wanted to bring us back to talking about um, body, body, a loss of body belonging and then how we can find our way back or how we can guide other people to find our way back, depending on our positionality. For all of us, I, I believe we're all, finding, all trying to find our way back, so we could start there. So the very first line of you have the right to remain fat is, quote, unquote, my body used to belong to me. To be, to be honest, this is one of the most powerful first sentences I have ever, ever read in a book. And I can imagine for an author that this is, you just want that first, well, the title as well, <laughs> um, <laughs> the title and the first line to be pretty mic droppy. Like you want it to be, you want it to draw people in. And for me, this was an incredible first sentence. So throughout the uh, initial sections of the book you go on to share the trajectory of the loss of body belonging so I'm I'm hoping that you might be willing to speak a little bit about ways that people all people and more notice um, more notably women and folks um, who are marginalized in the world how do people lose body belonging like what are the various mechanisms and experiences that people might have which kind of interfere um, or serve as as distancing from our sense of embodiment because the, the the reason why I want to start here is people really want to find their way back and I feel like we can't chart mm. that course without stepping through how we lose that sense of connectivity in the first place yeah I mean I I just think again I'm thinking about a conversation I had a few weeks ago um and it was about embodiment and sort of that it was about the genesis that the moment that becomes there's many moments like maybe the moment of becoming self-aware, becoming self-conscious, and and having that's the moment that body image is created, right? Um, because mm -hmm. body image really is the idea that you have about your own body, the idea you have about yourself, and just that little degree of separation is itself what you know. That's kind of the crux of what I'm talking about, right? Like this is the crux of loss. This is where loss begins, um, because you know before before you're made aware of your body having a place in the world and having a meaning based on its place, you have a completely unselfconscious relationship to the body. Um, you have an instinctive relationship to the body. The body is designed to seek pleasure and goodness and intimacy love um and dignity right like those are those are hardwired into every human body and um and right like our society has very different designs for our body than what the body was designed for and and so you know I, I, but back to this conversation i remember she said you know um the moment that i realized i had a body was 100% the moment when i was taught that i was a black person Mm -hmm. And, and, and that moment was for her, it was traumatic mm -hmm. um, because it was in the face of being made fun of and being, you know, discriminated against essentially as a child. And I think that for a lot of us, body image emerges in a moment of trauma. Um, like most of us be like, we become aware, like, I, and I think it's important to say, right. Like that moment when we are, told that we have a body that has a placement in society that is 
that's the loss of innocence, like right there, you know? And so I think like, you know, whatever that moment is, and again, obviously for marginalized people, we have that experience, but everybody, pretty much everybody has that experience and it's exceedingly traumatizing, exceedingly traumatizing to all of us. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, similar, you know, for me, that moment, my correlating moment was the moment when someone said, you're fat. And I, and I knew that, and it was mean, like it was mean spirited. That word didn't mean anything to me, but I could tell from the way that the child, like the boy who was mm -hmm. in my class who said it to me, uh, I could tell that it was a hateful word because of how he said it. And, <clears throat> and so I think, you know, for me, that was, that was like a big turning point. And obviously it wasn't just that one moment, right? It took a lot of other boys, a lot of other moments like that to truly convince me that something was wrong with me. Um, but, you know, I, so I think, and, and I talk about this in the book, right? I, I um, just kind of remember, um, I, I don't know, this is a little bit, I feel like it's a little bit deviating from this question, but I think it's important to say, like, I, while I was being taught that being fat is wrong, again, mostly by straight boys, boys mm -hmm. who went on to become straight men, um, they were at the very same moment telling me that the reason that being fat was bad was because they didn't want to be my boyfriend and marry me and have sex with me. Right. Um, and so I think it's important to chart that those are two entirely actually separate things that were conjoined through heteromasculinity and rape culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to understand that when you're a woman, when you're a socialized female and you're experiencing fat phobia, there's already always a coercive, usually there's already always a coercive sexual element to it. Um, and so, you know, I think that that hugely shaped not only how I saw my body as a fat person, but how I saw my, my sexuality, how I saw my gender. And so, um, and I began to sort of these, all these things, which had all just been integrated and on, and on, it required no effort to manage them because they were integrated, then become fractured, mm. um, you know, and, and I, and I just sort of, I mean, there were so many ways in which this happened, but I think it's important to sort of say like the, the, that, that loss of body belonging really happened in those different ways. And, and, and I, I truly, right. Like our culture, like that transition from, I am just a self, I am a body, you know, I am, I am me, right? Not like I have a body uh, and I am me. It's like, I'm just me. Mm -hmm. And the body is just a natural extension of that. Um, in our society, that kind of relationship, it cannot work, cannot function. And so in order to be assimilated into society, you have to have that fracturing traumatic event. Mm -hmm. That is part of ass being assimilated into society. And it's part of what is considered a normal part of maturity trajectories, certainly in the West. And I think beyond. Oof, oof, oof. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, like, the because if you don't have that separated body mind thing, yes. um, then you are uncontrollable, literally, like you're, you're wild. Um, which is what we were meant to be. Um, and that doesn't, 
yeah, that doesn't work, right? You won't, if you're wild, if you're like, if you're integrated and you're embodied, we would not suffer capitalism. We would not suffer the prison (laughs) industrial complex. We would not suffer misogyny. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like, there's just no way that we would do it. And Mm -hmm. because injustice is unbearable. It's unbearable to the body. Um, And so Mm -hmm. we have to have this, this split, we have to have this split. Otherwise we would just, I mean, I think we would literally spiritual, I think we would die. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. so yeah, that, that's it's a safety mechanism. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And again, I mean, linking that back to um, trauma and experiences of trauma, we will as humans go to great lengths to ensure our own safety and survival. Yes. hundred percent. You know, even doing things to our bodies which are overtly harmful, right, and are named in Western psychology as quote-unquote disordered, which, by the way, I don't, even though I use that word in the context of how it's intended, I I, I say quote-unquote because I see every kind of effort to keep ourselves safe as functional. They yeah. are in the service of safety. And so I think when we can look through, look at things through that lens, I, 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 my observation is that we can, is that it creates just a little crack, a little bit of spaciousness there where, yes. you know, when we're able to notice it, you know, m- maybe there's a little opportunity there for some compassion, for some insight into critique, interrogation, and to an opportunity to see first of all, none of this is our freaking fault, you know, that it was done to us, not for us. And anyway, I feel like I'm getting a little bit on my high horse here, but, um, you know, yeah. this, is, this is really important. Well, and this is to, to go back to trauma. This is why fat phobia is introduced at the age of four and five, right? This <laughs> is why children in the West no fat phobia by the age of five, because, because, um, you know, if you want to, it's just, you know, we know from children's psychology that, um, whenever something is unstable, when the environment's unstable, they will create self-blame ideologies because it's far easier to blame yourself than to accept the possibility that your environment is unsafe. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, I think there's absolutely manipulation. I think, I think it's intentional that it's taught at that time because that is when shame can so easily be introduced and, um, and maintained for life. Yeah, that's really true. So if we were talking about charting the course or kind of mapping our way back to the body, um, the first thing I, I want to just pop on the table or pop on our pop on our tartan picnic rug here, as as we might say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Along with the scones and jam and cream and the um, I don't know, smoked salmon sandwiches, let's just say. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be said that dietitians and other health professionals are seen as cartographers. They're the the holders of the map, the holy grail, which will lead you back to, um, you know, back to embodiment and back to your body and back to acceptance, you know, which is the biggest, um, I I don't, it it confuses me how this narrative is that apparently we know how to help people to come back into their bodies when it's not our body, it's somebody else's body. So Mm. we're also kind of, positioned as people who can quote-unquote right the wrong or you know in shorthand fix help you fix your body your problematic body so the 
the reality is in you know in everyday practice is that many people do bring their body distress to us to health professionals to dietitians hoping for this like map towards themselves to be des designed by somebody who they are crossing their fingers and hoping that we're knowing we know what we're doing right often it's disguised as quote unquote health I just want to be healthier and then of course that kind of brings people onto the same page as us because the assumption is that we also have that desire for for someone too so given that for us this is baked in not only to our upbringing um, culturally but then also into our training I'm wondering your thoughts on how we can contribute in big and small ways because I, I do think it's the, the, the those little moments and the and the opportunities for pause and for slowing down that can really uh, give us the 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 strong foundation get our feet on the ground and lay down our our, our roots to you know be charting this way forward with people uh, when they're when they're um, you know presenting to us with with body distress and saying help me fix my body so what are your ideas about how we can contribute towards the dismantling of this structure which draws people to us and keeps us in this, in this really complex dance with the people who we are serving? That's a very, very long question. <laughs> how, how can we disentangle ourselves from the narratives that we have been trained in? That's, that's what I want to ask. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways. I think it really does start with um, noticing. Um, I just I, I just think about how I, I think about all the dietitians that I really respect who are, you know, doing really trailblazing work. I think you're one of them, right? Like you, I mean, I know that you sort of shy away from the cartographer, um, maybe identity and, and that's understandable, but I, I do think that there, there is sort of, you know, there, there absolutely has to be people who are willing to stand up, um, and speak, against the the paradigm right mm -hmm. because like I think the overall field is very invested in saying we can fix you yes, we yes. can fix your problem quote unquote or your disorder and I also have issues with the word disorder too so I love oh, that you okay. brought that up um yeah like you know I, I think the field as a whole is still saying that and so what I think is powerful is like you know if somebody comes to you, you have a client and they want to have like maybe they don't even know that you have a radical view or a different view. Um, but you know, that moment, just that, that break in the, almost like that break in the storm or the break in the sky or whatever, where, um, somebody sees something a little bit differently, like, Oh, what do you mean that? Like, you know, not all dietitians have these attitudes or not all people have these things, or maybe I don't have an eating disorder me, or maybe I don't, maybe I don't need to think of the way that I eat in that way. Um, and, and I think that that's like the first moment. Right. And again, I just, I just have so much faith in kind of the, that process, right. That like, that we are all touched by 
these very like whenever you're interrupting the the trajectory of something there's an opportunity to to change course right mm-hmm. to change how how that thing is going to turn turn out and i just kept thinking as you were talking i kept thinking about intuition mm-hmm. and i think one of the things that's really powerful like for example and so so dieting um, like this idea that you have to restrict food it, it has it has a very specific social purpose. And, and I think I, I kind of want to get a little bit big on the question and then address it a little, and then co- sort of conclude. But like, I, so I keep coming back to this research that was done in Glasgow and in Scotland. And, and it's, it was a, it was decision-making research and it was interested in the connection between hunger and decision-making. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting to talk to the, the, you know, the, the principal investigator, the lead person who's leading the research. And, and, um, and, you know, the research, so, so the short, the, the short story is the research found that when people were hungry, um, it was harder for them to make long-term decisions. Um, and, mm. and when people aren't hungry, they just make, you know, they just can do it. <laughs> essentially. Um, yeah. and, and they kind of tested this by like, you know, I don't even need to get into the mechanics. That's just sort of the punchline. But, but what we talked about, I was like, well, how, I asked him, like, how do you measure hunger? Um, and he said, there's two measures we actually use. Like one is a blood glucose test, which tests physiological hunger. Um, and the second is a subjective test about whether or not they feel hungry, regardless mm-hmm. of their glucose, blood glucose. And I was like, well, which type of hunger actually did you find when you controlled for each? Like which one actually had a bigger impact on it and he was like the subjective one (laughs) and yeah and um and I was like that's fascinating right so again like it goes back to like you could you know somebody could test your blood right now and tell whether you are technically hungry or not right because like there's a presence of a hormone or not um but but it doesn't matter if you're technically hormonally chemically hungry or not, like it doesn't matter if you're chemically full, quote unquote, um, if you feel hungry, which is like the reality of a dieter, um, you always feel hungry and, and it, and it impacts your decision-making and whatnot. So I think like, you know, what's powerful is for me, the first thing that you need to do, the first thing that we need to do in unraveling is we need to stop. We need to get people out of the space of hunger. That's like the most urgent thing because what happens then, right? The communication with the body, when you're hungry, the only signal for the most part, I mean, the most dominant signal that your body is telling you, the biggest piece of communique that it's giving you is I'm hungry, feed me, help me survive. I'm hungry. Feed me, help me survive. That's it. That is almost it. Right. And then once you're out of that space and you're kind of out of precarity, it might take a few years for you to get out of precarity, that sense of precarity. Um, Once you're out of that, then the lines of communication open very loudly. And I think, and I think what's powerful is like for each person to your point, right? Like you can't chart another person's path. Um, I think, you know, the intuition has to chart that path and it's it's a very individual process. And so I think like once we get people out of that precarious state of hunger, then the body starts doing its own work. It starts saying, 
this job is awful. Your partner mm. is garbage. Like that friend <laughs> got to go. Um, you know what? You actually love this thing. Did you know you love the color purple? Did you know that you love this? Did you know that you hate, like, you know, you, you want to be polyamorous? Did you know that, you know, that you want to make this painting? Um, and I think what's powerful, like, again, I think there is this idea that the whole reason that people are encouraged to restrict is so that they never get to that place where their instincts are driving them towards, you know, essentially uniqueness, essentially like their own unique um, contribution to society, the world themselves, right? Like the planet, um, the culture cannot function on that. It needs us to function as units because it's built like a machine. And so, right, like, I mean, I, so I, I just want to sort of finish and say, we can help people um, get on their own path by encouraging them to opt out of and, and not engage in as many socially sanctioned self-harming behavior as possible. And in that way, we create, we sort of, I think of it as like clearing the path, like clearing the meadow so that they can have that that, you know, that, that stillness, that space to just mm -hmm. safely, maybe they need to hibernate, hibernate, maybe they need to, you know, whatever, like, I mean, they, they, they just need a space of safety in which they can, relative safety in which they can do that. And our job is to just clear away a little spot for them so that they can, you know, gestate internally and then go off and become their own like magical being, you know? <laughs> Okay, so the first thing I'm doing after this is looking up that research because that's <laughs> yes. right, right. I love the way that you have weaved together a total geek out with and what's this got to do with people's everyday processes and, you know, <laughs> embodiment and healing. So thank you for indulging my, um, my total nerdy side because I do love that even though I, I get a little bit, frustrated with the reliance on quantitative data over qualitative data um, yeah. and the kind of the elevation of numbers and data over people's lived experience. I do get a bit frustrated with that. However, recognizing that there is utility in even you know, quantitative data and, um, but that is also bringing in the subjective because that is people's experience, people's experiences that they're bringing into the research, which seems to have illuminated a lot um, of information for this particular team. So um, I will, I'm definitely going, well, the first thing that, that I, yeah, I'm going to do is go look up this research. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I mean, I think I want, I mean, you're, you're inspiring me to state this thing, which I think is like, like the research in terms of anti-diet, you know, fat positivity, fat liberation, body, all of it, it is substantiated by data. I think there is mm -hmm. this like idea that like, you know, we're just weirdos out here with our tin hats. We're just like, making you know, shit just, up. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I'm like, no, I mean, the only, I think what's frustrating is I'm like the only data point that I can see that the entire thing is hinged upon is thin people from what we know live longer, healthier lives. And on the other side, I mean, to me, like there, there's, if there's a line in the sand, that's the only data point on that side that's pro the argument of keeping things the way they are. And what we have on the other side of the line is hundreds of data points that say, one, you can't turn a fat person into a thin person. Two, when you try, you destroy their spirit and often also their body. Um, we've got all that data. So I just want to be clear 
that like we are not over here with hat in hand just asking people for human rights We're, we've also got the empiricism on our side as well yes which is uh, which i envision is only going to get stronger to be honest if the, if the past yes. 10 years is any indication Yes, 100%. Yeah, there are some amazing fat activists doing incredible research. You know, Kat Pauze, for example, in New Zealand yes. is doing some beautiful research. And then there's the um, fat, act- fat Attitudes Test, which um, mm. or the Anti-Fat Attitudes Test, I should say, which has been developed by a team in Perth here in Australia. So there is some mm. really great research that's coming out. Yes, I'll send that to you. It's really fantastic. It's all validated and really solid. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff um and i think we're only going to see more as folks are being given um quite rightly by the way opportunities to be able to um study empirically communities who traditionally have been done to and not necessarily involved especially as researchers Mm. themselves i think it's incredibly important yes same so um Okay, I'm thinking of going in two directions here, but I really want to, like, I'm a little bit, I've written down the word um, disorder here. And um, before we kind of finish up, because I want to be really thoughtful of your time, do you know what's just occurred to me? And this is, I can't believe this has kind of just occurred to me, because you what what you just spoke about then, uh, what you just spoke about in the section before last was um the way that folks are demanded of to come back and step back in in line and that occurs to me that the word order is Mm. orderly you know and to come back Mm. into order and Mm -hmm. you know and what that actually even means right so order in and of itself I mean I'm just talking off the top of my head but I'm a massive lover of words and language and Mm. meaning and narratives and storytelling and so I'm now kind of having a little bit of a a a, a brain explosion moment where I'm like oh (laughs) so if people aren't falling into order and aren't falling into their quote-unquote rightful place we name that as disorder or Mm. you know whatever Yes. Anyway, just thought I'd process with you there. Yeah, me. 100%. <laughs> I love that. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you for indulging my processing. I appreciate that because I've just come to that. I'm like, holy shit, that's why I've got an issue with it. That's why I've got an issue with it. Yes. I mean, yeah. And I think to your point earlier, it's like, you know, typically these things that we label as disorders, they're normally there to protect a person to keep them safe in some way um and I think like I I mean I think one of the um I mean the the corollary I'm thinking of is um specifically around gender like one of the the so so essentially the normal response this is this is in the arena of gender-based sexualized violence right so we kind of know that there's a normal um there there are some some typical ways in which women and girls in particular react to sexualized violence, every single one of those has been criminalized 
Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's important to sort of say like, you know, yeah, it it just so happens that, um, and and I think specifically the the traditional therapeutic model upon which all of these various care services or, you know, like dietetics, et cetera, like are kind of based, is, is the idea that the individual has deviated from society, which is itself never interrogated. Hmm. Um, the idea is to bring them back into your point, back into the fold through corrective behavior, you know, and that's, so that's a traditional therapeutic model. Oh, all right. <clears throat> yes. There's hours. There is hours and hours and hours of unpacking and processing here for me moving forward. So thanks. Thanks for that. I appreciate yes. it. Both, both a facetious and genuine thanks as well. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. bloody hell. <laughs> it is exciting though. It, it, it is very exciting. Um, Virgie, just to, just to finish us off here, is there anything that you would like to um, mention or to, or to say about or to share about your own kind of journey back to your body that you'd like to, um, that you, you, that you'd like to speak about? Yeah. I mean, I think I want to say, and it's a bit, it's a little bit bittersweet to share, right? Like I think, and I think in the book, I'm reckoning with the fact that I'm never, I can't go back. I can never have that relationship. I think the reason the book starts with like my body used to belong to me. It's an indication of this sort of making peace with a form of defeat, a form of loss. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think like on the one hand, you know, we can't go back to being that three-year-old self. Um, I think we can channel that child. I think we can, like, I, I can channel her. Like I can jiggle the way that she used to do and I can roll down a hill and I can, you know, be silly and, and use my body in funny ways the way that I used to. Um, and so I can channel her and there's like moments of, of that, of that. But, um, but, you know, I think the, 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 the beautiful part of that loss is that the future of that relationship is not known to me. I am charting it as I go. It's not going back. It's not, it's not a process of returning entirely. It's a process of charting. It's a process of pioneering in some ways, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and, and I think that it's, it's mysterious and it's complicated. It's very nuanced and, but I don't know where it's going, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think for all of us, that is like, for me, it's hard to sort of be like, oh, I can remember, I can remember now that I'm no longer dieting um, because I had repressed those memories for a long time. I can now remember what it was like being three years old and, and how good it felt to be in my body and how much pleasure the world gave me. It was like mm-hmm. this completely connected feeling to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not ever going to get that back, you know, but, but, um, but, and again, that's sad. And I feel sad about even just saying that. And, and yet, you know, like, um, what if, what if something as good, even if it's different is possible? Um, like what if, you know, like what, like, and I think for me, it's like every moment, every one of those steps, like every time that my body blasts a piece of information and it's just, and I'm like, 
holy shit, I don't even know how you figured that out. Like how in the world could you have communicated so clearly to me what needs to happen in this moment? Um, and, and like those moments are just like so special. And so I think, and they're increasing over time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I guess that's like a little bit of an insight into, into that. And I, I, yeah, I don't know where it's headed, but I have a lot of faith in it. And I think also I'm, I'm currently grappling with and currently uh, processing and grieving the fact that like, I think a lot of us who start, who have started an anti-diet or body liberation journey, I think at the beginning, maybe we believe that this was maybe the path to bliss rather than the path to humanity. It was the path to Mm -hmm. bliss. Mm -hmm. And I'm coming to terms with, it's like, you know what, that, that sort of pursuit of constant pleasure, that constant feeling of like being stoked out of your mind or whatever, like that's not living either. Um, and just sort of, you know, just recognizing like this cycle, like what I was mentioning earlier, this cycle of like joy and then difficulty and then, then healing and then hope. And then like, that's, that's what it means to be a human being. Um, not constantly like being in love with, you know, every single part of your life and, and, and just sort of remember like changing the goal, changing the goal to being like here in this moment, um, rather than, cause I think we bring the dieting. I mean, I know I brought like my dieting bootstrapping mentality to my healing process right? because what else are we like, we only have one framework which is like capitalist accumulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, I mean, I've been really trying to sort of, again, be very patient with like, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to have that, that desire to like do that thing. Um, but sort of having patience and just being like, you know, actually being a person is about something that's more complicated than that. And I have to settle into that if I want to have peace, which is what I want more than anything. And what a beautiful way to resource yourself for the unknowns of the future, you know, for for however things unfold for you physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, that you feel resourced with the open-heartedness of what is yet to come. It's actually, I love the way that you describe that. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, I think that really helps to, you know, chart a course forward, which helps helps all of us humans to be with the uh what is what is known and that is the unknown <laughs> like yes. you know, when things are going to be unknown of course humans we completely freak out when things are unknown but what you're mm. really speaking to there is how can I resource myself with the um using the repairs that I have already um done mm. and how can I stay committed how can I stay um committed to my humanity which is you know what you said rather than you know um committed to bliss I I hear you so much in that too I think that I think that it was a an idealistic uh vision you know an envisioning of body liberation and you know as all good movements you know as all good movements unfold um the the um I guess the the envisioning is going to shift over time as we understand yes. more about the human experience. <laughs> yes, 100%. Yes. Yeah. Um, Virgie, thank you so, so much. This has really, it's Saturday morning for me here now. I know it's Friday mm. afternoon. So I do not want to interrupt any more of your fun day Friday. And so you can go on and um, 
rest or party whatever it is that's in your because I because I'm imagining that you have a very hectic social life right here in COVID (laughs) (laughs) a hectic social life with the plumber um (laughs) (laughs) anyway um so I I wanted to invite you to um, mention where people can find you please because I, I can imagine if people are not already super familiar they're going to want to be more familiar with you Mm, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, so I'm pretty active on Instagram at Virgie Tovar, V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V-A-R. My website is virgitovar.com. I have uh, a podcast called Rebel Eaters Club, which you can download or stream pretty much anywhere. Um, I have a new book coming out in 2022. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, I'm excited to <laughs> Spring, it's going to be a journal um, that is designed to really help you change your relationship to your body in a way that feels good to you. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I have a few spots. I'm doing some international trips in 2022. So I have some spots left for a trip to Italy where we'll be eating and walking a lot. Um, and so that's, that's what's going on with me. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is so, ex- this is really exciting. Congratulations on, um, on your books so far and congratulations on this, on this newer um, book that's coming out. I can't wait to hear more about that as that unfolds. And and again, thank you so, so much. You are incredibly generous, wise and insightful. And I've, oh, I've got some notes here that I'm going to go and, and process on the couch with a cup of tea. So, um, oh, yes. Yes. And I apologize. I didn't even use any Aussie slang, which is actually very disappointing. It's very disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really liked the tartan picnic visual. I felt like that was a little bit Aussie-ish, but it was great. (laughs) Do you have those? Okay, so so something. Yeah, we do. But I just, I think in my mind it was transported. (laughs) Right, right. The classic picnic rug here is the tartan of various different, you know, tartans. And with with the rubber back. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the rubber backed rug that I have this really clear vision of family holidays. Like you were stuck yes. in the car for hours, fighting with your siblings. She's looking at me. She's on my side. She's breathing. Mm. When are we going to get there? <laughs> and then I have this memory of the boot or the um, trunk opens, and there's the rubber backed picnic rug oh. and the um what do you call it the the little uh like the metallic uh cups that would always yes. have cordial in them do you know what cordial is no so cordial is like a flavored syrup that you put a little bit in the oh, bottom okay yes I do know what it is I was like I think okay. I, I thought it was a totally different reference yes I do cordial okay <laughs> yes yes I don't know whether you use it very much in the states but here is like it's kids drink cordial basically you know and and it's been the like the demonized thing but I love cordial it's great um so cordial in those metallic cups and the picnic rug would come out and like if you were really really lucky you'd have like a a bun you know of some description like a fruit Uh, bun you know the sort with maybe the sprinkles on top or the coconut or whatever so yeah okay so now we're getting getting into fees childhood Aussie holidays (laughs) 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 I don't know well you started it with the tartan picnic rug (laughs) 
<laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, Virgie, it's been such a pleasure. I am just thrilled to have had this conversation. I hope everybody listening really enjoys this. Um, this will be going up on the um, on the podcast list. It'll be there forever. And, um, and Virgie, again, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you for just being so awesome and bringing such brilliance to the world. Mm, thank you for having me. Thanks again. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.